Now, the Bible reading comes from John chapter 17, verses 1 to 19. Um, it's when Jesus was praying before he was to be taken away for his death and resurrection. So this is Jesus' words. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and, he, and prayed. He said, Father, the time has come. Bring glory to your Son. Then your Son will bring glory to you. You gave him authority over all people. He gives eternal life to all those you have given him. And what is eternal life? It is knowing you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth. I have finished the work you gave me to do. So now, Father, give glory to me in heaven, where your throne is. Give me the glory I had with you before the world began. I have shown you to the disciples you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew for certain that I came from you. They believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those you've given me because they are yours. All I have is yours and all you have is mine. Glory has come to me because of my disciples. I will not remain in the world any longer, but they are still in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them safe by the power of your name. It is the name you gave me. Keep them safe so that they can be one, just as you and I are one. While I was with them, I guarded them. I kept them safe through the name you gave me. None of them has been lost, except the one who was headed for ruin. It happens so that scripture would come true. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world. I say them so that you, that those you gave me can have the same joy that I have. I have given them your word. The world has hated them. That's because they are not part of the world any more than I am. I do not pray that you will take them out of the world. I pray that you will keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to it. Use the truth to make them holy. Your word is truth. You sent me into the world in the same way I sent them into the world. I make myself holy for them so that they too can be made holy by the truth. Friends, we are going to spend uh, two weeks in uh, this prayer of Jesus and there's a, the, the final part of the prayer that we'll look at next week. Uh, I've called today Jesus' prayer for his glory and his disciples. And we do ask the question, why is it that people pray more when a tragedy strikes? A terrible illness is discovered or opposition to the gospel from family and friends intensifies? Why is it that we pray more when we are trying to reach our friends with the gospel, whether they are nominal Christians, atheists, agnostics, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus? Why do we pray more? Why is it that we pray more when our churches are divided or when a leader is caught out in sin? Why? Because it is at these tough times that we face the truth that we need God's help. When opposition comes, you know you can't deal with it alone. When something goes wrong 
in your home and you're up in the middle of the night praying because you know there's nowhere else to go, nowhere else or no one else who can help you other than God. When everything is going well, we don't pray and everything's going well, we don't see that need. And Jesus teaches us, I think, here, as we face difficulty and crisis going to the cross, he's going to be crucified. His disciples are going to be persecuted. Uh, with that in mind, Jesus teaches the importance of prayer. You see, John 17 follows John 14 to 16. Jesus' farewell discourse where he has prepared the disciples for his passion, for his death. He's given them instruction about life after the death of Jesus. He has urged them to uh, maintain spiritual intimacy with Christ. They've been informed of their mission to testify to a hating world. They've been encouraged that the Holy Spirit would come, the promise of the Spirit would come and fill them and help them in the mission. The Last Supper has taken place. It is the night before his crucifixion. He prays for himself. He prays for the, the disciples and all the believers throughout the centuries to come. That means including us. We'll look at that next week. He prays why? Because we need help. It's a battle. We need God's help. It's a tough mission that we are called to. And the mission will not be accomplished without prayer. It will not be accomplished without God's help. So he begins chapter 17, after Jesus said this, he finished his discourse, he looked toward heaven and prayed. What does he pray for? Firstly, he prays for himself. Let's have a look at that. He is conscious that in communication with his father, there's some significant events are going to take place in his life very, very soon. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. And then in verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. He prays for his glory. Jesus has always been glorious. He came from heaven to earth. And he has the glory. But now he prays for his glory. And he teaches us that there is glory in the cross. And in fact, when Jesus says the hour has come, uh, they've been looking forward. To, he's been looking forward to this hour, this time. And the hour is a reference to his death, to his crucifixion. And in fact, he says, Father, let's do it. I came into this earth for this very reason. Now's the time. Let's go. Time's up. Come on, God. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. In John 12, it says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless an ear of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Glory's going to come through his death, he says. There's also glory in his exaltation. Verse 5, glorify me in your, in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Glory in the cross, glory in his exaltation when he returns to the Father. The first connection is most striking, glory in the cross. In what sense can we speak of glory in the cross? You see... The Roman cross was a symbol of violence, of torture, of evil. But to Jesus, it means glory. Leon Morris notes, The great idea is that glory, real glory, is to be seen in lowly service. When someone who is high and powerful chooses to leave that secure and comfortable place in order to engage in a piece of humble service, that is, in John's eyes, real glory. The cross is the place where we see what real glory means. 
the Son of God who is supreme in heaven, accepts the abuse, the rejection, the torture from evil people. He could have wiped them out in a moment. He could have called down angels to take out those who tried to kill him, but he didn't. He accepts the abuse. He accepts the rejection. He accepts the torture, for it is the pathway to forgiveness and eternal life to all who believe in him. There's glory in the cross. And then he prays for his Father's glory. Because Jesus, there needs to be glory to him, because he is the Son of God. But then he wants to deflect glory also to the Father. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And he does this here in this prayer in two ways in which he brings glory to the Father. Firstly, by imparting eternal life. For you granted him authority over all the people that he might give eternal life to all those who you have given him. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The very action that glorifies God and the Son brings life to lost sinners like us. And he says eternal life is the gift of the Son. If you want to have eternal life, you must receive the Son. And it's interesting that he says that the Father has given them to him. In uh, John 6, 44... Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Those who receive the gospel, listen carefully, and realize, ultimately realize that God has taken the initiative to bring them to the point of repentance and faith. God always, in his grace, takes the initiative to draw his people to himself. Eternal life is knowing the Father and the Son says that you may know the only true God and Jesus Christ. Someone says, well, you Christians are only interested in eternity. You just want a pie in the sky when you die. No, 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 we want Jesus now. You see, eternal life is knowing God and his son now, and we get eternity with him as well, but it's getting God ourselves. Don Carson writes, eternal life is not so much everlasting life as knowledge of the everlasting one. You get Jesus, you get life. And then the Father's glory comes by completing the work, says Jesus. He brings glory by uh, bringing people into the kingdom, but also by completing his work. I brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, I think Jesus is anticipating the cross to come, anticipating the resurrection that is to come as he speaks, because he has not yet died, but he brings glory to God in all that he does. And our supreme motivation in life, like Jesus, ought to be to bring glory to God. To bring glory to God. We've been talking about together for his glory. And if, if you ever get bored of that expression, for his glory, well, stop being a Christian, will you? Because life is for his glory, not for ours. It's for his exaltation, not ours. It's for his fame, not ours even though the world tells us it's all about us. The Westminster Catechism says, chief end of mankind is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Let's do it. So our missionaries go on mission, why? To bring glory to God and to see lives transformed. Our Exploring Christianity course is to bring glory to God as men and women come and discover the message about Jesus. Our youth ministry seeks to bring glory to God. And by the way, I thank them for setting this stage up today. They had it on Friday night for the youth night. They had a full band here. And we have a youth service tonight. 
So I said, yeah, leave it up. It's nice to have a different stage every so often. But they do what they do so young people come and recognize that God is glorious. Our hospital chaplains serve to bring glory to God. So whatever we do, it is for his glory. Secondly, there's a limit to the work. Jesus said, I've completed the work you gave me to do. And so we are called to complete the work God gives us to do, but it's different to Jesus. Jesus was to go to the cross and his resurrection and bring life to all people, but we are also given jobs. Bruce Milne writes, a similar limitation rests upon every disciple. We are not called to reach the whole world or minister to every need. You ever feel like that? We're going to change the world. Well, little me's not going to change much. How about you? But you can change a few people around you as you serve God, and God can use you to help change them. You can impact your, your neighborhood. You can impact a school. You can impact a soccer team or a netball team or a rugby team, even rugby. But there's a limit to what God has given you to do. There's specific work for us to do. In finding it and doing that specific thing to the limits of our powers lies our fulfillment and our peace. I love that. Glorify God, complete the work God has given you to do, and you've got to you know, weigh that up. What is it that God wants you to do with your life? Uh, you have various jobs and various ministries, and your ministry may be your job. Finish that job. And a necessary completion of the work. Jesus finished the job. He went to the cross. He was raised from the dead. He then uh, was exalted back to the Father's right hand never know when your job's completed. So I was thinking about that when I was writing. I was thinking, yeah, I've been here for 25 years almost. And uh, when's my job completed here? Um, I just, at this stage, unless God tells me to go somewhere else, I'll just keep serving at somewhere. God will tap me on the shoulder and say, your job's done. Go somewhere else and do something else. It doesn't mean you have to spend 80 years doing the one thing. Sometimes God calls you to a job and a ministry and then something else. You can change. But just be conscious of what God wants you to do and how he wants you to serve him. Keep at it. Secondly, having prayed for himself, his glory, the Father's glory, he then prays for his disciples. I was reading a magazine from Sydney Missionary Bible College uh, a few years ago. It was written by David Cook, who was the principal back then. And it was, uh, he wrote a piece on a book called The 100, a ranking of the most influential persons in history. And a fellow called Michael Hart wrote the book. And uh, David Cook writes, Hart is careful to make clear that it is not greatness or goodness that is being ranked, but influence. What surprised me was that Jesus Christ was ranked number three. The first and second rankings in this book belong to Muhammad, then Isaac Newton. He said, Hart is neither a Muslim nor a Christian, but says that according to his observation, Muhammad has far more influence on his followers than Jesus does on Christians. He says that Jesus' ethical teaching is remarkable and original. If they were widely followed, I would have no hesitation in placing Jesus first in this book. But the truth is that they are not widely followed. In fact, they are not even generally accepted, he writes. That's a bit of a critique. I don't know if it's an accurate critique, but it's a critique. Hart takes an example, the command to love your enemies. Most Christians, he says, see this as an ideal that might be realized in some perfect world, but one which is not a reasonable guide to, con- to conduct in the actual world we live in. 
Jesus' most distinctive teaching, therefore, remains an intriguing but basically untried suggestion. I think he's so wrong there, but that's another matter. And David Cook writes, I would like to introduce Hart to Gladys Staines, who continues to minister in India in the same area where her husband Graham and sons Philip and Timothy were torched to death in 1999. He says, however, although Hart doesn't have it right, his observation has a lot going for it. How much of our Lord's teaching do we merely see as an ideal? We agree with him, but have little intention of truly heeding him or obeying him. Loving each other, forgiving each other, resolving tensions, being dedicated to world mission, caring for the poor and pursuing justice. We may say we like all those things, but are we doing them? Well, friends, in John 17, Jesus prays for two key themes. The unity of the church and the effective mission of the church. We don't just say we believe things, but we do something about that. And what he does in uh, verses uh, 6 and 8, he firstly describes uh, the believers, and they are men who have grasped and believed the revelation of the Father and the Son. He says, I have revealed you to those you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. These are the people who believed it. But also he says that the disciples belong to God are to be distinguished from the world, verse 6. And it's interesting language he uses here. Even before Jesus' mission, the disciples were gods and God gave them to Jesus. Notice that language. They were gods and he gave them to Jesus. And this point is repeatedly made, and I made reference to that earlier, the Father draws us to Christ. He says, you gave them to me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me, verse 6. And Don Carson, a great scholar, writes, the disciples belonged to God in the beginning inasmuch as he predestined them as their children. The Bible says, we are chosen by God before the creation of the world. Here he says, God says, I gave them to you, Jesus. But we must never think that because God predestines his people that the disciples or you or I are mere robots or puppets. The disciples believe, they hear, they obey. Their belief is their belief. They're hearing, they're hearing. The obeying, they're obeying. Carson continues, It is not easy to see how God's unconditional sovereignty, even in salvation, and man's free agency as creatures in God's universe, can coexist. But coexist they do, according to the Scriptures. In expressing these truths, it is essential to avoid formulations in which God's activity and man's activity become mutually self-limiting. God chooses us, we believe. Those things are held together in the Scriptures. But then he says, verse 9, I pray for them, having described them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus will pray for the world later, but now he says, I'm praying for these people, these disciples. And glory comes to Jesus through the disciples. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I don't know about you, but uh, I find that an encouraging statement. You know the disciples, how many times did they fail Jesus? How many times did they not understand Jesus? How many times did Jesus, in a sense, slap him around and go, do you guys not understand anything yet? But he says, even in their limited faith, their limited obedience, they bring glory to Jesus. What a remarkable truth. 
And when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, those disciples then are empowered by God to take the gospel to the known world, to suffer for Christ, and their faith grew. But he does pray, 11 and 12 and 15, that they might be protected. Jesus looks into the future and knows there's going to be a battle taking place. Protected from disunity. I'll remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one, together for his glory. United together as we are one. As the Father and the Son are one, he says he wants his church to be one. God, protect them. Friends, it is a, a bit of a joke in places that uh, sometimes churches grow and say, oh, you know, we used to have 10 Baptist churches, now we have 15. Most of them, the other five came because there were church splits, and now we have more churches. No, that should not be the way it happens. United, together, loving. We've heard testimony today of compassion and understanding one another, working together, protected, and also protected from the evil one, because behind it is Satan. It said, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I'm of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one, they are not of the world, even as I am not of it. The evil one, Satan, operates to bring persecution to the church, to bring disunity in the church, uh, to bring sin into the church. He is seeking to do anything he can to bring down the church. And often through persecution. In Acts 4, Peter and John faced the Sanhedrin, were ordered not to preach about Jesus. In Acts 5, the apostles were arrested and put in a public jail. In Acts 7, Stephen becomes the first martyr. And today, Christians are persecuted across the globe. Secondly, he prays that they will be filled with joy. He looks forward and he says, I want them to so know me that there's a joyfulness in them. I'm coming to you now, Jesus tells his father, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of joy within them. Jesus expects and prays that Christians would be joyful in their relation with God and their relationship with, each one, with one another. You see, we're not the ones who look like we're sucking lemons the whole time, but we're the ones, they're, they're, we've been touched by God. There's, there's happiness, there's joy, there's contentment. As we meet people, think, well, what, is, what have you got? Right? What is it about you? You face difficulties and stresses, and there's this joy in you. And you know, you tell them then, who brings you that joy? That is Christ, our Saviour. And he prays that they might be sanctified, 17 to 19. So being holy or sanctified, uh, he means to be set apart for God and his work. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I truly sanctified myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Sanctify has the whole idea of holiness. I'm not sure the holiness here is the key idea, but the, the fact that we're set apart for God and for his work of going and taking the gospel to others. As I said, to be sanctified is to be set aside for God and his purposes, to be dedicated to God and his purposes. As we know God better, as we love him more, we see that we are set apart for a mission. Remember one of our themes together in promoting the gospel. Right? We need to take the word to others. As you have sent me into the world, he says, I have sent them into the world. God has set apart his people for mission. The disciples were set apart for mission, and they then went to their known world and took the gospel to others. I love Jesus. I have sanctified myself that they too may be truly sanctified. He performs his work of redemption 
on the cross for the benefit of us so that we could then go out and do his work. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you, he says, even in John chapter 20, verse 21. We need protection. We need joy. We need to be sanctified. So Jesus prays for us. I'm so glad that Jesus prayed for us. The disciples, we'll look at our specific prayer for us next week. But he prayed for the disciples and I think it, it applies to us as well. His own death was costly. Our service of Christ is also costly. And that's why we sang that song earlier and I want to finish with these words. An almighty fortress, you go before us. Nothing can stand against the power of our God. You shine in the shadows, you win every battle. Nothing can stand against the power of our God. So when I fight, I fight on my knees. With my hands lifted high, oh God, the battle belongs to you. And every fear I lay at your feet, I'll sing through the night. Oh God, the battle belongs to you. The battle belongs to you. May God help us to live for his glory.